Go ahead and open up your Bibles to Matthew 26. <clears throat> Matthew 26. We're going to read verses 26 through 28. We will look later at 1 Corinthians 11. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. Matthew 26. 26 through 28. These are the words of God. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after a blessing, he broke it, and giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father and triune God, give us humble, teachable, and obedient hearts that we may receive what you have revealed and do what you have commanded. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Yahweh, my rock and my redeemer. Through Christ our Lord we pray, and amen. You can be seated. I want to begin by refreshing your memory. In the previous message of this series a couple of weeks ago, we talked about water baptism. Baptism is one of two sacraments, and it is the doorway into the church. Baptism is the doorway into the church. When one repents and believes, which itself is, of course, a prompting of the Holy Spirit who gives those gifts, one is to be baptized, to be cleansed from sin and sealed unto the covenant. Baptism is a sign and a seal given by Christ for the church. It's given by Christ for the church. It is a marker. It sets you apart. Now, normally the governors of the church are to distribute this sign to professing Christians and their children. That's kind of a normative thing. But baptism serves as an, an uh, you could say it like a, it's an initiation. It's an initiatory rite of sorts. And it brings the recipient into the church of Christ. So baptism is one sacrament, the Lord's Supper is the other. And I want to just give you a reminder about what we said about sacraments. And this is from uh, Burkhoff, and it's a great definition. He said this, A sacrament is a holy ordinance instituted by Christ in which by sensible signs, the grace of God in Christ and the benefits of the covenant of grace are represented, sealed, and applied to believers, and these in turn give expression to their faith and allegiance to God. I think this is a solid definition. I, I find it to be one of the most succinct, and it kind of covers everything that needs to be covered. Sacraments are seals of the covenant of grace. When you are brought into the covenant of grace, these two sacraments are to be utilized. In order to seal something, something has to be distinguishable. So you're either baptized or you're not. There's no like middle ground there. You either are or you are not. So it needs to be distinguishable. Um, sacrament must be concealed from others in the sense that the Spirit works inside of us and we don't always see that in other people. It also needs to be preserved in purity. So God does actual work in them. There is a purity in baptism and the Lord's Supper when we do it a certain way. And it provides assurance. It provides assurance. God gives us real promises in them. 
Now, these two sacraments, when accompanied by the word, are a means to provide God's covenant people with protection, with certainty, and with fortitude of faith. So sacraments are covenantal rites. Sacraments are covenantal rites, R-I-T-E-S. To speak of the sacraments in terms of the covenant of grace is to speak of the union between the sign or the action itself and the thing that it signifies or represents. There's a union between the sign and the thing that it represents. There's a unity in the action and its significance. So the bread and wine, we think of the bread and wine sitting here before us. These, these are things that mean something covenantally when done in a certain way. Water, as a thing, means something covenantally when it's carried out in a certain way. Now, Roman Catholics make the mistake of blurring the distinctions. They blur the distinctions between the thing and what it represents. So then there's no, you know, the, the, we're going to talk about it later, but the actual body and blood of Christ, they believe it turns into that in some mystical fashion. So they blur the distinctions. But general evangelicals, they actually, they make the, the mistake of separating the union that they communicate. So really, when you do this, nothing happens is kind of the idea. So we want to avoid both ditches of the Roman Catholic, no distinction, and the you know, nominal evangelical, no reason sort of thing. Now, to, to refer to them as rites, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, it's merely to highlight the fact that they belong to a community, they belong to the church. The bread and wine belongs to the church, the water belongs to the people of God, and they are important to the life and the vitality of that community. So it's important that the sacraments are dealt with in a biblical manner. We have to be biblical about it. We want the water and the bread and the wine to be used in a responsible, mature fashion. So that's what I mean by covenant, covenantal right. Now, in the case of baptism, we've said it before, but baptism is the right of entry into the visible or what we might call historical church. That's the right of entry. It's a mark of covenantal membership. So if you want to be a member at Cross and Crown, we would say we, you need to be baptized if you're not. Um, the Lord's Supper, so that's baptism, but the Lord's Supper is a rite of nourishment within the body of Christ. It's a mark of covenantal reinforcement. When you take the bread and the wine, you are reinforcing what is there, what is signified by faith. So to, to participate in a covenantal rite, a sacrament, is to participate in the actual accomplishment of what it is they signify. Does that make sense? We want to participate in what it is that it actually signifies. In other words, these sacraments really do change us. They're meant to change us, to spur us on to greater faith. Um, they change our status, that's baptism, and it changes our sanctification, that's the Lord's Supper. These rites establish us in a new status, and they do what they're meant to do by the work of the Spirit. Now, they do things. I want to make sure we understand they do things, and we need to treat that as, as such. So it changes our identity. That's, that's baptism. It draws us near to Christ. That's the Lord's Supper. So it's word and sacrament is covenant and faith. The word gives rise to the water, which cleanses. And it also gives us the food which renews. And all of this is covenantal in its orientation. Let's look at our passage here. 
Matthew 26. Now while they were eating, Jesus took some bread, and after blessing, after a blessing, he broke it. And giving it to the disciples, he said, Take, eat, this is my body. And when he had taken a cup and given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now the form of the Lord's Supper was instituted here at the Passover meal. The Feast of Unleavened Bread was basically the beginning of that feast began the evening of the Passover. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they each cover the event. Um, John does not. John gives us this other thing in John 6 where Jesus offends everybody by saying, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And a bunch of people threw up their hands in the air and said, how could it be? And they ran off. But that's kind of John's version of the Lord's Supper. But the Synoptics tell us exactly what happened with very little difference in perspective. Now, the Jews would gather together annually every year to celebrate Passover, and Passover itself was a reminder of what Yahweh had done in bringing them out of the land of Egypt. The fact that unleavened bread was used served as a picture, a visual picture, of their break with the sinful leaven of Egypt. Why did God tell them to eat unleavened bread? Because they were to leave the leaven of Egypt. That was the poison of sin and unrighteousness. They were to walk away from that. Now, people misunderstand this, but leaven isn't always, it doesn't always mean sin in the Bible. Sometimes it can mean righteousness, like Jesus uses it in Matthew 13. But in this context, eating unleavened bread at Passover was meant to communicate Israel's rescue from the leaven and affliction of Egypt. Here, Jesus transforms the message. We must leave behind the leaven of sin and instead, we must now leaven the world with the gospel of the kingdom. Now, we know leaven transforms the whole. We know that, that the, the, the yeast goes into the bread, and it expands, and it grows, and that's the visual we have of leaven. And so leaven transforms the whole. The whole therefore, Christians are tra to transform the whole world. Many, many people today argue about this. Christians have no business trying to transform the world. Well, then you don't understand the Lord's Supper. Christians are supposed to transform the world. That's why today we eat leavened bread, because Christians are supposed to establish Christendom through the vehicle of the law and the gospel of God, through our worship, through our sustenance in the Lord's Supper. People argue all the time about this. Well, Jesus had unleavened bread. We should never, ever eat leavened bread in communion. Well, I would argue that that's why it shifts and changes, is because the leaven is it was a symbol of sin but in the new covenant it is now a symbol of gospel growth of kingdom growth and so we should eat leavened bread because it's a reminder that the growth of the kingdom is inevitable and that's part of our task as christians so jesus in the text he took the bread and this was the middle loaf of three total loaves in the passover meal he took the bread he blessed it he gave a blessing and we do the same thing in our partaking of the Lord's Supper. He broke it before his disciples. They watched him break it. There's symbolism there. There's a reason we break the bread so everybody can see the broken bread. And so that's why we do it before distribution. And the reason is because something is visually and covenantally communicated. 
When you see the bread broken, you are to look at that and say, that was Christ's body broken. You're supposed to see it. It's a visual sermon, the broken bread. So he gives it to his disciples. He passes it around to them, and they partake. But then he says something remarkable, something just out of this world, right? He says, take, eat. Not controversial. Take, eat. This is my body. This is my body. Covenantally, the Lord's Supper is a new Passover. When we take the Lord's Supper, we go to the table every week, we are participating in the new Passover. But the Passover is Christ. The angel of death passed over us because our death is Christ's death. In the Old Testament, they didn't die. The blood was put on the doorpost and the angel of death passed and then they didn't die. Um, But we need to die. (laughs) That's the issue. We need to die covenantally. In In Christ, we do die and he is our death. So bread and wine communicate the death of Jesus. That, that's what's significant about this moment with the disciples. Broken bread is the equivalent of his broken body, but there's more going on here. The disciples are going to flee. They are going to break from Jesus too. Everything is going to break apart in his death. His death is a scattering. Remember when he was arrested and they ran off? Peter chose the wrong thing, cut off Malchus's ear. Jesus heals it and said, you're going to live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. It wasn't God's plan at that moment. We are, we're supposed to own swords, Luke tells us. If you don't have one, go buy one. So if you don't have a 9mm pistol, go get one. Because um, there's a principle there. But in that moment, w- Jesus was to die. So, you, you know, don't fight that. That's what was happening there. But his death was a scattering Remember, Peter denies him three times. The disciples scatter. They're there at the crucifixion from a distance. The shame, the mockery, they're there. But at the end of the day, they scattered. But then the resurrection happens. And what does the resurrection do? It unites us together. Here's what's important about the bread being broken. The body of Jesus is a temple. That was the true temple. And that's why he prophesied the destruction of the physical temple because his body is now the real temple and he's establishing his people as his temple. But the body of Jesus is a temple which will be torn down. It will be torn down. And remember, there was confusion in the Gospels about this. It will be torn down, but it's going to be reconstituted after three days. What? It took years for us to build this temple. But he was talking about his body. He is the temple. The bread will be broken, but we will have a uniting together. So even in the brokenness, Jesus gives thanks. There's a lesson here, children, especially. Not that I'm solely, you know, poking at you, because we adults don't have it together half the time either. But when things are hard, we're supposed to be thankful. (laughs) In the middle of this, knowing that his body is going to be ripped to shreds, Jesus is thankful. He offers thanksgiving. If you're feeling sorry for yourself, I would say go and be thankful. And if you don't know what you can say to be thankful, well, you still have breath in your lungs and your heart's beating, so be thankful. So he gives thanks, and he knows exactly what he means and what he is saying, and yet he rejoices with thanksgiving. It's an amazing picture. So his body is true food for his people, And the old leaven of sin and unrighteousness, the leaven of the Pharisees, he warned them about before, 
must be torn asunder. And in his body, that is what happens. Then Jesus takes the cup of blessing. This cup that he grabs, it's pretty well known and established. This is the third of the four total cups that were utilized during the meal. He takes that third cup, the cup of blessing, and he gives it to his disciples. And he says here in the text, drink from it, all of you, just like take and eat. Drink from it, all of you, his people, for this is my blood of the covenant. It's a phrase from Exodus. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The fermented grape juice, what we call wine, is a cup of blessing. But Jesus connects it here to the Sinai covenant in Exodus 24, the blood of the covenant. Um, The idea in the Old Testament, and it's carried out here, is that shed blood purges us from sin covenantally. We have to have a blood representative. That's why the animals would be shed in the Old Testament system. And now we don't do that because Christ's blood was shed. But we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But the reference to Exodus is essentially a recapitulation in the newer covenant where Christ's blood is the thing that fully and finally deals with sin. So our consciences can be purged from sin. Our consciences are sprinkled by the blood of Christ, symbolized in the sprinkling of baptism. Uh, That's from Hebrews. And we thank God for it. We thank God that he can deal with the innermost part of our being, our hearts, that's where sin comes from, and he, he deals with it by dealing with our hearts. So this is why we drink wine at Cross and Crown, because the fermentation speaks of the potency of Christ's final sin-crushing atonement. The, the fermentation process utilized is a symbol of that potent blood. It's his death is bitter, the wine's bitter. But it's also tasty because it's good for us. Christ's death is good for us. Now flip real quick to 1 Corinthians 11. Just keep going back past the book of Acts. You get to Romans and then 1 Corinthians 11. Verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was being betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. Paul's writing years later after the institution of the supper, and clearly it was an important aspect of Christian worship. Jesus took the Paschal meal, and he authorizes something new for his people. This is a sacrament put in place. Note a few things that are stated here. First, it was the Lord Jesus who instituted it. Paul acknowledges that here. He acknowledges that Jesus was the one who instituted this sacrament. It is his supper. This is not my supper. It's not any other church leader's supper. This is the Lord's supper. It's his, not ours. So we need to listen to Christ. Second, this was the night he was being betrayed. Why is that important? Well, this shows us that the Passover has ended and communion as we know it is now in force. 
This is the testament from our great testator. So the old Passover is gone. Jesus is going to be betrayed. It points to him, and now something new is in place. Some churches practice communion once a year, and their argument is, well, because Passover was once a year. Well, that was the shadow. The New Testament reality is all about eschatological abundance. When the water was turned into wine, there's fullness. There's not a short supply here. So Jesus transforms it into a communion meal for his people. And that's why we celebrate it weekly here on the Lord's Day. Third, Jesus took the bread and gave it new meaning. We already saw it points to his body. Fourth, he gave, he gave thanks and he blessed it, signifying its new covenantal use. And its use is for the preservation of the church and the perpetuity of the mission. Fifth, Jesus broke the bread. This is just kind of what pulling together what Paul says here. He broke the bread. He demonstrated what would happen in his suffering. And we are to do this in remembrance of Christ. We are to take the bread. We are to consecrate it. That's why we do a prayer of consecration every Sunday. We are to consecrate it for holy use. We're setting apart these actual physical elements for, for holy use. We break the bread. We eat of it. And we feast by faith in the certainty of his bodily brokenness. So Jesus took the bread, not his body. He could have broke his finger. This is my body, and it's going to be broken. He didn't, though. He gave us something that's a symbol, more than a symbol, but a symbol nonetheless. He took the bread, not his body. He said, this thing in my hand, this bread that I'm holding, I imagine he took the whole loaf at that point. Flattened bread, the whole loaf. This is my body. This thing in my hand, this bread, this is a covenantal sign of my body. Sixth, he took the cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is now the new covenant in my blood. This is covenant renewal. This is the capstone of the covenant of grace. Um, Zacharias of Sinus, he was the author, one of the authors of the Heidelberg Catechism. He said this, The new covenant consists in our reconciliation with God and communion with Christ and all his benefits by faith in his sacrifice already offered without the observance of the ceremonies of the old Passover. So it's a change. There's benefits in taking the Lord's Supper, and it signifies what the real new covenant does, and that forgives us of our, of our sins and brings us into God's people. Seventh, the bloodshed of Christ is meritorious for his people. The flesh and blood of Christ is separated in death, which constitutes forgiveness, remission of sins for his people. That's what Jesus is pointing to. Eighth, when we eat and drink, we proclaim the Lord's death. You are preaching a sermon when you come forward every week and take the bread and the wine. You are preaching a sermon to the world. We are proclaiming the Lord's death, Paul says. We publicly profess to a watching world that Christ's death is for Christ's people. And all of this is covenantal, as he says in 1 Corinthians 10. Steve read that passage. Either men are going to sit at the Lord's table or they're going to sit at the accuser's table with the demons. Everybody's sitting at a table. Which one are you going to sit at? The Lord's Supper is a covenantal table in the world of covenantal idolatry. Let us not forget Psalm 23. In the presence of my enemies, you have prepared for me a table. You've set that table in the presence of my enemies. This is in the presence of the enemies of Christ in the world. 
so we need to value it and find it important. It's called the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 11.20. It's called the Table of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 10.21. It's the cup of blessing, the bread which we break in 1 Corinthians 10.16. It's also the breaking of bread in Acts 2.42 and Acts 20 verse 7. And in 1 Corinthians 10.16, it's called communion. We also find that it's the Eucharistia, or Thanksgiving. That's why some churches will just call it the Eucharist. It's just synonymous with these other words. Uh, Eucharistia means thanksgiving or thankfulness. So what this means is that in the middle of a, of a culture, the church find, whatever the culture is around the church, whether it's worldwide or here locally, she is breaking bread and drinking wine at the covenantal table of the Lord, signifying her loyalty and fidelity to Christ the King by oath and by covenant renewal. When you partake of this, you are renewing covenant with God, which means we should take it seriously, right? You're renewing covenant with God. So the church preaches the word, we preach the word, we teach it, and then we consume the word, and both things proclaim the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. So how shall we then live? The past, present, and future all meet us here at the supper. The meal is one of remembrance, signifying our covenantal tie to something that happened 2,000 years ago, namely Christ's death. Think of that. You're partaking of Christ's death 2,000 years after the fact. There's a past element to it. But our hearts need to be directed to the death of Christ, for his unspeakable death is where we have gone to die. When you come and you take communion, you should be thinking, this is my death too. I have to die to sin. I have to die to unrighteousness. This is my death, and I'm consuming the death of Christ by faith because I need to die, and then I need to be raised in Christ. And in Christ we are raised and we are seated. But this meal is also for today alluded to already. It signifies our present day living by faith in the active promises of God. When you come, you're not just remembering what happened, you're remembering what is happening. And what is happening is you are living by faith in the promises of God. And our hearts need to be directed by faith in the here and now, because we have struggle, we have difficulty, we have unbelief to put to death. We have challenges that we face every single day. And so when you partake, you need to know that you are surrendered to Christ in his will now. And when we gather like this, the covenant is confirmed, it's sustained, and it's deepened in our hearts. And it's a love feast because Christ loves us today. He loves you today. He loves you right now. But the meal is also meaningful for the future. As we live eschatologically throughout the ages, we await Christ's defeat of all of his enemies and the subsequent establishment of the full leaven of the kingdom throughout the world. We partake and we ask God to fill the earth with the leaven of the kingdom. We want the leaven of the spirit to bubble up like in the wine so that the kingdom grows and is established here on earth. The supper reminds us of what has happened in the death of Christ. It strengthens us by grace and in lo- love in the present, and it prophetically orients us to live as kingdom people tomorrow. Now, I want to deal with a question here. We're going to talk about kids in a minute. What exactly is happening when we partake of communion? Is it magical? 
is this like witchcraft? Talk a lot about that in Africa. <laughs> is it witchcraft? What is, what's happening when we eat it together? Is, should there be this like feeling or something? What, what is actually happening? Historically, there are five general views. I'm just going to burn through them. But the first is that nothing actually happens. <laughs> That's the view of unbelief. And, and that could be you if you come and partake and you're just not even close to thinking about Christ. You're busy in your mind worrying about whatever else you have to do today and tomorrow. And, and you just don't have the faith in that moment to orient your heart towards what should be happening. And sort of like, well, nothing's going to happen because either you're, you could be living in a completely apostate life and come and you just think, well, nothing happens. I keep eating, but I'm not feeling any better about myself. Well, then we have a problem. So that's one view. And that's many evangelicals believe that when you do this, nothing actually happens. It's just kind of the thing we do. That's a problem. Second, there's the Roman Catholic medieval view, which says that the bread and wine turn into the actual body and blood of Christ. That's called transubstantiation. So when the priest does his thing and it magically turns into it, it's sort of, in this view, it's the sign and the thing that's signified are rolled into one indistinguishable sacramental sacrifice, which the Reformers and us today say, whoa, hang on, Christ's atoning work was finished once for all, we don't need to crucify him again, that's a problem. Although they don't always admit that that's what's happening, but it is what's happening in that view. That view was shaped by Aristotle, Thomas Aquinas, all throughout the ages, and here we are today. Third, we love our Lutheran brothers and sisters, but they have a view called consubstantiation. Luther did not like the Roman view, but he changed it, and we today, as reform guys, do not like the Lutheran view. But alas, Luther believed that these elements, or the words of the institution, are literal. When Jesus said, this is my body, we should just take it for what it is. It's his body. It must turn into his body somehow. But Luther said, well, it doesn't turn into it necessarily, but Christ is bodily present in the supper. So Christ, Luther said he's in, with, and under the elements. And so he didn't like the Catholic view, but he didn't want to completely say Christ is bodily present. Well, I'll explain that in a second, because I don't agree with him. Neither did Calvin and other reformers. But fourth, there's the Zwinglian view, Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli. He believed, look, it's just a sheer commemoration and, and memorialization, okay? Christ isn't present bodily like Luther and the Romans think, but the Catholics think, but, but he's spiritually present in the faith of the believer. Most evangelicals today fall into that category. He's just, he's present here when we eat the bread and drink the wine. He's here, he's somehow here but he's not bodily here. Because where is Jesus right now? He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. How can he be bodily present? Can you be bodily present? No. So that's where the, some of the reform guys said, no, you can't really be, he can't really be bodily present. So there's the Calvinist view, and that would be our view here. Um, it's between Luther sort of like extremes here. You have the Catholic view, the Lutheran view, and then you kind of have the Zwinglian view. We're kind of in between there. We're between Zwingli and, and Luther. Calvin denied the bodily presence of Christ, but he did insist on 
a real presence of the Lord in the Eucharist. That phrase, real presence, it's like, what do you mean by that? Christ is present with us when we partake of communion. How is he present? Well, Calvin believed the supper was not an act of man, which rules out the commemorative view, but it is a gift from God to man. Christ gave us this sacrament for, for us, but it was his gift. God gave us as a means of grace to primarily strengthen our faith. So what happens when you partake of communion? Well, first, symbolically, the bread and wine represents the body and blood of Christ. So we know that. Second, we know that the supper is a command. Jesus said, take and eat. We're to appropriate the blessings of Christ via the Spirit in this act. Burkhoff states it this way, The use of both elements enabled Christ to give a vivid representation of the idea that his body was broken and the flesh and blood were separated and that the sacrament both nourishes and quickens the soul. When you partake of the bread and wine, Christ is present with us. How is he present with us? It's mysterious. We don't fully understand. Mediated by the Holy Spirit, we are partaking of Christ. But the third aspect of this is in these words of explanation, Jesus uses a metaphor. He says, this bread signifies my body. When we say, when Jesus said, this is my body, you either take it strictly literal and it turns into it, and that's the Roman Catholic view, or you believe that it's a metaphor that still has spiritual significance, but it's a metaphor. It's not to be taken strictly literally in the Roman sense. So it doesn't merely signify the body of Christ, but it really and truly seals unto the people of God the grace and mercy of God in Christ. So what is happening when you take of the bread and wine? Let me tell you. The Lord's Supper represents the Lord's actual death. You are covenantally partaking of his death in this way. It also symbolizes our participation in Christ's death. You consuming Christ is a participation in Christ. By faith, we believe that it unites us to the crucified Jesus, um, and it unites us to him in this way. We also know that when we partake of communion, our hearts are nourished, our souls are strengthened, just like food strengthens the body. So this strengthens us, but also the supper represents the union of God's people in Christ with each other. That's why you don't take communion by yourself in the closet at home. There's a symbolic value of us together taking it because we are the body of Christ. We too need to be strengthened together by him. The Belgic Confession states it this way. It explains the supper this way. It's to represent to us the spiritual and heavenly bread. So to represent to us spiritual and heavenly bread, Christ has instituted earthly and visible bread as a sacrament of his body and wine as a sacrament of his blood. He testifies to us that as certainly as we take and hold the sacrament in our hands and eat and drink it with our mouths, by which our physical life is then sustained, so certainly do we receive by faith as the hand and mouth of our soul, the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior in our souls for our spiritual life. 
You can look that up later. It's in the Belgic Confession. So to reiterate, what is happening here? The table seals the love of Christ in our hearts in covenant renewal. It seals the love of Christ. It gives us assurance in the promises of the covenant of grace when we believe on the gospel of the kingdom. It ratifies, once again, our, our participation in the death of our Lord, thus binding us by the Spirit to the salvation that Christ gives his people. It is a seal. It is a badge and a marker which unites us, unites us, it unites the participant with Jesus Christ, our priest king. You are truly, in this moment, partaking the bread and wine, uniting yourself to Christ. It isn't just a past look. It's a true covenantal connection in real time. The body and blood of Christ, though located in heaven now, is communicated to God's people through consuming these evidence. Jesus isn't on the cross right now. He's resurrected and raised. But that death means something enormous for the people of God. And by taking it, you are joined to it. So it's not physical merely, right? It's not physical merely, but it's spiritual. It's mystical in some sense. Not mystical doesn't mean magical, but mysterious. It's sacramental. It's covenantal. It's not magic. It's covenant theology. Where faith is present in the supper, Christ is present with the believer. And you should believe that and know that. Unbelievers like Judas, Judas at the very least partook of the bread. We don't think he took part of the wine because he left at that point. Judas partook of at least the bread. Simon the magician, you remember, was baptized. They participated in the covenant rite, but it's not effectual for them. And why wasn't it effectual? Because they didn't receive the thing signified. Why didn't they receive the, the thing signified? They didn't have faith. So the covenant is explained to us when the word is preached, but the covenant is renewed in us when we eat bread and drink wine. Now, eating Doritos and Mountain Dew at home with online church, a real thing, it does not achieve the covenantal right. And it's not really healthy for you, as an aside. Nor does having pizza and grape juice. There's a reason Jesus gave us these elements. Now, I, I kind of want to end here with, I want to talk about pedo-faith and pedo-communion. Because I want to clarify our position as a church, spelled out in our Constitution. But we believe and teach here at Cross and Crown that infants are to be baptized, and once physically able, are then to partake of communion. No, it does no good to bring your two-week-old in here and try to ram bread and wine down their throat, okay? They need to be physically able to do so. We do not make that a test of membership, by the way. You don't have to subscribe to infant baptism to be a member of Cross and Crown. We obviously would want to lovingly shepherd and help people understand because we do think that it is a biblical um, uh, teaching. But the only gospel we want as a, the only stumbling block is the gospel. That's the only thing we want to be a stumbling block. We don't want these positions because there are good, good people on both sides of the debate. But that's just where we're at. But that said, our children participate in the life of the church. One of my favorite things is hearing the children sing the doxology loudly. So it's awesome. But they participate in the life of the church. They sing. Uh, they follow along in our prayers to some degree or another. 
Uh, they too listen to sermons. And um, whenever appropriate, they can say amen as well when the word is read and we say amen. Amen. May it be true. Oftentimes they'll lift up their hands and they lift up their hearts, which means they ought to be included in this as well. Baptize, baptism brings you into the door. The supper sits you down at the dining room table. That's the logic here. And it follows that baptized children who are able to physically consume the elements ought to be permitted to eat as well. So they that are baptized are in the house. Let them eat. Let them eat. What if they don't understand it? What if they don't fully understand it? What if you have a two-year-old who's partaking of communion and they don't fully understand? Well, aren't they supposed to discern the body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians? Well, they are. And that's what we're teaching them. Any of you parents refused to speak English to your child until they were able to speak it? No parent refuses to speak to their children in their native tongue because they aren't fluent in the language yet. If you just goo-goo-ga-ga their way until they actually figure it out, they'll never figure it out. We learn by mimicry, right? We learn by participation. Well, that's what this is. The practice is, the practice is instructional. If someone is excommunicated from the church because of unrepentant sin, then he or she may not partake of the Lord's Supper. And by the way, self-suspension, someone choosing not to partake, isn't advisable. You don't have to clean your act up before you come. None of us are fully clean. We have to have the cleansing of Christ. That's what the table's for, though. So don't just self-suspend yourself, right? Don't, don't just sit there, well, I did some bad things this week. I can't partake. No, you confess it before the Lord, and you come and you partake. But suspending children, I think, is unwarranted as well. We didn't excommunicate the kids because they couldn't tell us the Ten Commandments, even though we can't. Children are not excommunicated. Children are welcomed into the home, and they are welcome to eat dinner. None of you didn't feed your kids until they could make their own peanut butter and jelly. We teach them. We bring them along. And it's the same thing in the house of God. And my challenge for you today is we are finished. I want you to eat with joy. Eat with joy. This isn't a funeral service. It's okay to come and smile. Smile while you're in line waiting, right? Say hello to the neighbor. You know, like, you know, we don't have to treat this like it's a funeral service. You're not walking up to a casket here. There's a time and a place for that, but this is not it. We get to gather for the glory of the king, and he has invited us to dine with him. This is his meal. And baptism seals you into the covenant, into the church. But this supper, to be re repeated each Lord's Day, that's a seal into the benefits of Christ. You are partaking of the benefits of Christ. And we do this repetitively because the covenant must be renewed. We must constantly feast on Christ and on his word and in his meal. But what does God want he wants the gospel stuffed into your heart so that everything that pours out of you is joy and gladness and thanksgiving. And in the gospel, that's what you have. So take heart. The king has brought you near and he has given you the best of foods. So eat and be satisfied. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word and thank you that we can align ourselves to your will and your plan. Thank you that you have revealed yourself so that we know how to think about various things. 
We ask and pray that your spirit would be present, nourishing us through these means of the bread and the wine. And Jesus, as you are present with us, we rejoice in what you have done in giving us salvation, in forgiving us of our sins, and bringing us near to you. So I pray that as the word is proclaimed now, we would partake of this word, that we would be nourished and edified, that we would glorify you as we seek to preserve the bond of peace that you have given us. So we honor you, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Enrich us, would you? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.